Hey guys, welcome back to another exciting episode of True Crime on Easy Street. We are here at Easy Street Restaurant, Bar, and Performance Hall in Center, Alabama. If you don't know where Center, Alabama is, grab a map, ABC Triangle, Atlanta, Birmingham, Chattanooga. We're right there, a great little tourist community. I'm here with some other people, but first of all, let me tell you who I am. I am Scott Wright, and I'm a mediocre journalist. I'm Katie Givens, and I am not a lawyer. I'm Kelly Turner, and I'm not a doctor. And this is part two of a two-part episode. We didn't know exactly when we started part one if it was going to stretch into two parts, but when we got to the end of one, I had talked until my jaw hurt, and Katie was ready to jump into part two, and so that's what she's going to do today. Kelly and I are going to sit here and eat cookies and drink whatever it is that we've brought with us. I love cookies. (laughs) I told you not to say that. (laughs) We are going to sit here and eat cookies and drink whatever we have. That looks like coffee, but I'm not even going to make a guess, Kelly. Uh, It's better that way. Just don't. While Katie tells us about the the conclusion of our case. And last week, we started talking about the 16th Street Baptist Church and that horrible bombing in September of 1963 where four little girls were killed. And we sort of ended the show with the act itself mm-hmm. and didn't really get into the consequences for the folks who committed that crime. Mm-hmm. We ended it with the FBI closing the case. Right. And five sealing years, it. Yeah. Sealing five years after it happened, the FBI, n- nobody was convicted of anything more than hauling illegal explosives across mm-hmm. state lines or whatever it was. And uh, so Katie has got the... Uh, suspects in her sights and is going to walk us through the rest of this. So I'm leaning back. Well, there you go. <laughs> uh, we left off in 1968 with the FBI closing their investigation and sealing all files of evidence, which means that no one could come in and see the evidence on the case and reopen it without FBI approval. So we fast forward to January of 1971 and Alabama Attorney General William Baxley, he reopens this, or he has the FBI, re, or he, he, he has the FBI unseal some evidence so that he can reopen this case in Alabama. He was just a law student at the University of Alabama in 1963 when the bombings happened. When he was in law school, he said, I have to do something about this. It was a lifelong goal of his to get back to this case and have it solved. Bill Baxley was a great public servant for the state of Alabama for a long time. He served in, I think he was lieutenant governor at one point. He was attorney general for a while. He ran for governor at least once that I can think of uh, and just dedicated a lot of his adult life to public service in Alabama. Mm -hmm. Great man. So he starts the, he starts the case back with Shambliss, who we said was identified as one of the four suspects. And he was at the time identified as, or suspected to be the ringleader of the whole shindig. So, they had witnesses who identified Chambliss and placed as the one who placed the bomb. So, like we said, there were witnesses that saw a man get out of a car, and now we have more witnesses that are saying that they actually, it was Chambliss, and he was the one who placed the bomb under those steps. We already know he was the one who purchased the dynamite from a store in Jefferson County, but at the time, he said that the dynamite was to be used to clear land uh, that the KKK had purchased. So, he had purchased dynamite to clear some land for the KKK. Baxley was met with a lot of resistance from FBI on obtaining uh, the evidence that was originally collected. So he didn't get everything they had. He, he got bits and pieces of evidence. 
and that evidence was formally presented in 1976. So from so it took him a good five years to even get what he got. In November of 1977, at the age of 73, Robert Shambliss stands trial in Jefferson at the Jefferson County Courthouse in Birmingham, Alabama. He is indicted back in June of 77. He's charged with four counts of murder. And these, I guess, they're state charges, right? Yes, mm-hmm, these it's are state Baxley, charges. So mm-hmm. okay, so this is a trial just in the state of Alabama. He's indicted in June. Trial begins in November. There's a pre-trial hearing in October where Judge Wallace Gibson ruled that he would only be tried on one count of murder. They're for whatever they're they're trying him on the murder of Carol Denise McNair. The remaining three. Oh. Won't be charged with. Well, we've had this conversation before on this show about multiple murders, and there's only one murder charge, right? Mm-hmm. And so there, there's some there's some reason that people in legal circles know that there's a it's a better bet, I guess, to try the one that's most egregious, if that's the right way to say it, Katie. Th- that is a thing. Um, is it? I but mean, it's yeah. not. That's not the case here. Because okay. Denise is 14. She's not. I would. I would think that. If you're going to go for the most egregious, you go for the eleven for the eleven year old for Addie Mae. So yeah, so yeah, they. What, was there more evidence? They just chose Denise. I looked to try to figure out what what the difference was, and I I couldn't tell if it was the manner in which she died because they all died differently. Uh, like uh, some, that is true. So, and and her. I, I'm not going to go into their their manners of death, and I didn't even write them down. I think I, I know what you're talking about. They, but they each they each died differently from the explosion. So I my assumption and from what I could tell was that's that's the only difference because they were all in the same place. They all died from the same act, but it was all different. Well, let's death. let's be honest. I mean, people out there, you know, we're not going to sugarcoat this. I mean, when you bomb a building and you kill four children. It's not like they all died quickly mm-hmm. um, and uh, painlessly. They were all found huddled together mm-hmm. from the explosion. Mm-hmm. and In so various they, states of, I don't even know what word to use. They, they were all pronounced dead by the time they reached the hospital. We'll say that. Mm-hmm. But they, they flew through the air like rag dolls. It's a term yeah. that was described. It's horrendous. So, before, so there's this pre, there he is indicted in June, pre-trial hearing in October, trial in November. This whole time he is not sitting in jail. He is free because he was released on a $200,000 bond that was raised by family members and supporters. And I can only imagine supporters mean clan members. Means the so are they supporting that he is innocent, or are they supporting that he was right in bombing the church? He has pled not guilty, so they are so they're supporting, supporting that he his is innocent. innocence. So he's saying, mm-hmm. "I am not guilty of this crime. I did not yes. do this." Okay, he, he admits to purchasing the dynamite. Uh, he says he gave that dynamite to a Klansman. It turns out to also be an FBI agent named Gary Thomas Rowe Jr. Or an, I'm sorry, an FBI informant paid informant so that yeah gary thomas Rowe jr is who he says i get i gave that dynamite away so i was not in possession of it when this bombing took place first witness 
uh, called in the trial is a man named Tom Cook. He's a retired Birmingham cop. He said that Shambliss acknowledged his guilt regarding uh, his 63 arrests for possession of dynamite. Um, he's like, you know, well, we, we know he had the dynamite. We know he purchased the dynamite. That was what he was testifying for. But then, you know, of course, Sham- uh, Shambliss comes back and he insists again that he gave that dynamite away to Roe. So he's not denying that he purchased it. Right. Yeah, he's he, just denying that after he purchased it, he had anything else to do with it. Exactly. Okay. Uh, another witness is Sergeant Ernie Cantrell uh, testified that in 76, Shambliss tried to blame the bombing on another KKK member. So he says, well, he's changing his story. It wasn't all, he's, he used to say it was somebody else who did it, and now he's saying that Roe did it. Or Roe was in position. Well, but this is after he has... Uh, He's under the microscope of Bill Baxley. Yes, at this point, so mm-hmm. he's looking to, yeah, this that to yeah. hand this off to anyone else who mm-hmm. he can. And Sergeant Cantrell also testified of Shambliss's bragging about knowing how to build a bomb using fishing float and a leaking bucket of water. Mm-hmm. I, I read that. That's it's like a timing device mm-hmm. where when the bobber gets to a certain level as the water trickles out, it activates the And bomb. maybe it's called a trickle-down bomb or something. It's got a Could name be. like that. Yeah. So these are some witnesses that are, that are coming forward and saying... Yes, these are witnesses heard. for the prosecution. So we now have some witnesses who are finally... Talking. Stepping forward. Mm-hmm. His niece, Reverend Elizabeth Cobb, testified that he had told her before the bombing that he had enough dynamite to flatten half of Birmingham. She also stated that the bomb, uh, she also said that he stated that the bomb wasn't meant to hurt anybody and it just hadn't gone off at the right time. They didn't call him Dynamite Bob for nothing. Now, do we think that these witnesses are coming forward because it's a different time now and, and there's less uh, drawback for it? Or do we think that they're now just starting to put this together and they're saying, you know what, he told me that he had all this dynamite. Once he comes under the microscope. I think it might be a combination and the fact that there's a prosecutor now calling for witnesses. Okay. And, you know, there wasn't. Yeah, for the first time. So now we've got, a, we've got a, a man in the state of Alabama who's saying, come one, come mm-hmm. all. If you witness this, I want to yeah. hear your story. Yes. We're, okay. we're going to So we're people are feeling a little person. bit. And, I, okay, and I, think it, I think we should say the fact that the fact that Bill Baxley is a white man mm-hmm. who is the attorney general of the state of Alabama, who is being pretty adamant, hey, I want to make sure that the people who did this to those four little girls 14 years ago pays for their crime. People are starting to think, well, you know what? Maybe they're not just going to sweep it under the rug because, um, you know, so many cases where there was white on black crime during the civil rights movement, there would be this ridiculous less than an hour uh, jury deliberation. They would come out and uh, vote to acquit and it was ridiculous, like with Emmett Till. You know, less than an hour, an all-white jur- jury lets him lets them go, and a month later, they sell their story for four grand. And Emmett Till is, magazine. is from the previous episode you mentioned. The, Sorry. The gentleman yes. from, was he a, was he a he kid? He was a 14-year-old boy kid. who was killed in Mississippi he for came, allegedly whistling at a white girl. And, and he came from Chicago. He was from Chicago. And then his originally. mother, he's the one who, the, whose mother insisted he have an open casket yes. service back in Chicago. Yeah, look up that picture sometime on YouTube. You will be... Shocked and saddened and disgusted and or don't horrified. Sorry. Shambliss's niece also stated uh, that he told her he was frustrated that the KKK was dragging its feet on integration. 
meaning dragging its feet on its protests of integration mm-hmm. and on its putting a stop to integration. He's obviously wanting more violence, more more movement from the Klan. Yes. So he is found guilty of this murder, and he is sentenced to life in prison. At the time, the death penalty was not even on the table because in 1963, when the crime was committed, the death penalty had been appealed in the state of Alabama. So, if it wasn't, if if it was not a punishable or not a possible punishment when the crime was committed, they couldn't they couldn't use okay. it as a sentence. So they used the they used the law books as they were written in '63 to punish him in '77 yes, for so. a crime he committed in '63. Right. Okay. And so he couldn't be sentenced to death, so there there was no argument there. So he was sentenced to life in prison. Of course, he filed an appeal. It was dismissed. That was in into 77, and he dies October 29th, 1979, at the age of 81. He was, he was an old man. Uh, he was confined to solitary for, mo- for uh, most of his time in prison because that, uh, he, that was to protect him from attacks from fellow inmates. And he maintained his innocence and insisted that Roe did it the entire time he was in prison. Well, and I'm actually a little bit shocked that he was found guilty in this case uh, because we've seen time and time again people uh, walking with more evidence mm-hmm. than what they actually had yeah. on him. And so. And there was a lot of evidence that they didn't have access to because like Katie said sealed. earlier the FBI was very protective of the information that they had mm-hmm. um, and so the fact that Baxley was able to get a conviction in 77 uh, I think speaks volumes for and do how good think, of an attorney Bill Baxley was. Do we is. think they were protecting their evidence because they were looking for bigger fish in the clan if they had some you know people who had obviously infiltrated because he says he gives the dynamite to yeah. An FBI informant. Now, that's just an informant, so that may not be someone who's actually an FBI agent who's undercover. It could have just been someone In working with them. In different places, it, it named him as an agent, so I was unsure of his actual status on okay. that. Well, or do we think that they just felt like there truly was not enough evidence in, in the atmosphere that we were talking about in Alabama in 1965, was it, at the time, when they decided to seal it? Yes, 68. 68. Mm-hmm. Um, do we think that Hoover may possibly be thinking, well, there's not enough evidence and no jury in Alabama is going to convict sh- on this? Let's I'll just, bet there was. I don't know. I, I don't know what that to was do with him closing the case. I think sealing the files probably has a lot to do with those informants. I, yes, I, gotcha. would, I, would, I would agree with that. They don't want to give away. They might be afraid. Katie, stop me here. They might be afraid that it would give away some of their, uh, of, of the, Methods that they use to to gain an informant and who those people are and because they were still they working. Yeah. yeah, and that so so possibly yeah. some options. I mean, we obviously won't know for sure, but right. Well, we fast forward to 1995, and the case is reopened again. This is in a coordinated effort between state, local, and federal governments uh, to review cold cases of the civil rights era. They unsealed 9,000 pieces of evidence. In this particular case. Mm -hmm. Okay. Gathered by the FBI in the 60s. On this case, 9,000 pieces of evidence that were sealed that were not. uh, Some of those were given to Bill Baxley, 
in the 70s, but majority of that 9,000 pieces of evidence was not. That's a lot. So, well, the, the way I, that I read it about how the Bill Baxley investigation happened, in order to get a copy of an FBI file, you had to specifically request the exact thing that you wanted from the FBI. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't, they would pretend like, if you didn't know what you were asking for, they were like, you're not getting it. Yeah. And maybe 20 years later, yeah. uh, there was a different method of operation at the FBI. Well, they, uns- they unsealed every piece that they had okay, at good. this point. Well, this you can, you can see why that tactic could be used both ways, mm-hmm. too. You need to know what you're asking for, or sure. we're going to make it very difficult. Mm-hmm. We're going to be able to give you the runaround. Yeah, yeah. This was they were going after all these civil, civil rights era cold cases, so okay. they were unsealing it all. And that's a lot of evidence to go through. So it takes five years. May 2000, the FBI publicly announces that the bombing had been committed by four members of the KKK splinter group named the Cahaba Boys. Mm-hmm. And they found this from this evidence that the FBI had. Oh, well, yes. you hear. Yes. Okay. By the time of this announcement, one of the four members had actually died. Uh, Herm- Herman Cash had died in 94. And like, like we mentioned earlier, Shambliss had been arrested already and tried and convicted, and he has passed as well. So we've got two guys left that are alive, and like we mentioned at the beginning of episode one, we have Thomas Blanton and Bobby Cherry. On May 16, 2000, a grand jury indicts them on eight counts each, four counts of first-degree murder and four counts of universal malice. The following day, both men surrender to police. Thomas is up first. Thomas, Thomas pleads not guilty on April 24th, 2001. He decides he's not going to testify in his trial. Defense attorney, um, his, the first thing his defense attorney does is acknowledge his affiliations with the KKK and his views on segregation. Now, bear in mind, this is 2001. Mm-hmm. We're... Well, there's no way that you can paint Blanton to be anything other than a racist mm-hmm. POS. Yes. So you may as well admit that right up front. Yeah, so he goes, yep, you know. Don't deny that you were part of this group. Here's the elephant oh. in the room, and yes, it's true. And then his defense attorney goes, but just because you don't like him doesn't make him guilty. That's, he's talking to the jury. He's like, I know he's not likable. I know you're not going to like his views or his stances or, you know, groups he was affiliated with, but that does not mean that he is guilty of this crime. Prosecution had seven witnesses, including relatives of Blanton, the former pastor of the church, 16th Street Baptist Church, FBI agents, and former KKK members turned FBI informant. (laughs) The FBI informant's name was Mitchell Burns. And part of that unsealed evidence was tape recordings Mm. of Mitchell Burns having conversations with Blanton where he confesses and gloats about the crime. Good great. Why did they seal this? Why did they, what happened? Because they're protecting their methods of investigation. Recorded conversations, let me say it again, between this FBI informant, who was a former KKK member, so he was in the club. He was so. He so was how do we? Knew. Okay, so so not a lawyer. How do we? <laughs> <laughs> how do we then go? If you're the if you're the prosecutor, and then he says that's not me on the recording. 
It's not me. That never happened. No. He did not say that. Mm-mm. Okay. There, Why? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, I'm just saying, duh. Well, I mean, yeah. duh, you would think that was, it wasn't me. That, but I, I never read a thing where okay. they even thought to approach it from that didn't, angle. Didn't so thought to just say, wasn't, wasn't me. me. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, whatever. Well, they were secretly taped in June of 1964. There were a lot of tapings. Uh, one of them is Blanton speaking with his wife. Okay. Discussing his involvement in the bombing. In this, his wife is accusing him of having, a, having an affair Okay. Like, I know you were with this woman on this Friday night, and he uh, he's saying I wasn't having an affair because I was at a meeting, a KKK meeting, a Cahaba Boys meeting. Um, he said you have to have a plan, you have to have a meeting to plan a bomb. Mm-hmm. <sighs> he can be heard twice on the recording saying "plan a bomb" or "plan the bomb." So that's incriminating. Very Most definitely. <laughs> and does his wife testify? No. Oh. Are but, they still married? I'm sorry. It was one of those relationships where after the bombing, they got divorced. But then when he was, when there was a, 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 a scent of prosecution happening again, they got remarried at one point in order to protect them from being able to testify against each other, right? Oh, I, I missed yeah. that on. This is, uh, in Doug Jones's book, the, the former senator from the state of Alabama who was the U.S. attorney for the Northern District, or the Central District, whichever one it is, mm-hmm. uh, he goes into this a lot about those recordings and how they tried to get them on the record and make sure that they could use those recordings in court. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a lot about that whole sequence between Blanton and his wife and how they... Married and divorced and remarried and talked on the phone with each other. Yeah, it was. So they were in cahoots. Is the word I'm looking for. She is for. supporting him. She's not yes. being forced Correct. to help him. She's yeah. supporting him. Okay. Right. Sorry. The defense says that the prosecution has edited and spliced the recordings because they took hours of recordings down to about twenty something minutes. Okay. And there were poor. There were sections that were poor audio quality, uh, and. Kept being like, he didn't, he never specifically said, I planted this bomb. At 16th Street Baptist Church. Like, that was, yes, those, Mm -hmm. those were, it was never just specifically said. This trial lasts one week. Uh, There are closing arguments on May 1st. Prosecutor Doug Jones, a former U.S. Senator now, said the trial was conducted said, yes, this trial is conducted 38 years after the bombing, but it is no less important. And to paraphrase, he says, it is never too late for the truth to be told and a man held accountable for his actions. I like that. Mm -hmm. The jury deliberates for two hours and finds him guilty on the four counts of first-degree murder. And that's a quick deliberation. Mm -hmm. It is. I mean, the paperwork alone in jury duty takes what? An hour? I mean, I, I'm well, just I've saying it's a, it's a well, lot of paperwork. And, and Doug Jones tells a story in his book that afternoon after they gave the case to the jury. It was, I think it was a Friday afternoon or a Saturday afternoon. And an hour and a half later, his phone is ringing. And it's one of his assistants. And he, he's like, hey, you need to get back to the courtroom. Uh, the, the jury's coming back. And Jones thinks, no, no, no. The judge is just calling them in to give them their instructions for the weekend, and you guys are going to be sequestered, and we'll get with you again on Monday. Mm-hmm. And his assistant goes, no, 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 no. No, they're finished. They're done. Mm-hmm. Get back to Paperwork the Paperwork is signed. Yes. 
Okay. So it was that fast. Doug Jones was as surprised as anybody that it happened that fast. Yeah. And it, it probably had him a little worried. It did well. have him, it had him very worried. Mm-hmm. Yes. The judge asks Blanton if he had any final words before sentencing. And Blanton says, I guess the Lord will settle it on judgment day. Those are his words. That is not a denial. No, it's not. Not by a long shot. It's not. Like I mentioned, the death penalty is not on the table in these cases, so he is sentenced to life, and he was sent to St. Clair Correctional Facility in Springville, Alabama. He was put in a one-man cell under tight security. He seldom spoke of his involvement. He avoided most social activity, and he had very few visitors. And... I don't know if that was, I don't know how many people he had actually trying to come visit him, but even the people trying to come visit him, he didn't want there. He was mm. very antisocial for the rest of his days. He had a parole hearing on August 3rd, 2016, and they deliberated. Really? Yes. They deliberated on that in less than 90 seconds. I, I'm surprised to know that he was still alive at his advanced age, what, 15, 16 years after? He was convicted? Why in the world in Alabama do we like to give child murderers a parole hearing? Well, it's it's a legal formality. You have to. Okay. It's it's written in it's it's on the statutes. You if ever what is it, ten years? Because he was I mean we've talked about this before. Because it was just life in prison. It wasn't life in prison without the possibility of parole. I mean, we go back we go back to our very first episode. Yeah. Well, like Katie said, it lasted 90 seconds. 90 well, seconds. I know, I know. Oh, uh, really? It's your turn? No, it's not. Yeah, because See you in two years. Everyone was still mm-hmm. there. Doug Jones was there. And yeah. There was- oh, I bet there was a mm-hmm. line of people out the door waiting for their turn to say, don't let this piece of shit back out into society. And then how old is this man at this point? Oh, God. He passed away last year, June 26, 2020. He passed away, and I did not. Everyone else, they give they gave their age on. When they mm. passed, but I don't have his age. He had to be in his 80s. Figure he's in his late 20s or early 30s in the 60s when this happened. So say he's born in 35, 37, 38, somewhere around there. That'd put him in his early 80s. And if he died last year, call him 81. I don't know. I'm making that up. Yeah. Ish. Yeah. I, like I said, I, okay. I, don't, I don't have that. Somebody info. look it up. And when you give us Would a five-star you, review. Yeah, I was going to say, Katie age. said she tried to find that and couldn't find it. So yeah, give us a... <laughs> And it could be readily available, and I just missed it. But everyone else had the age on. Now we're back to the other man who was arrested at the same time, Bobby Frank Cherry. His trial was second. And and I, for some reason in my, and I'm sorry I've interrupted you yet again, mm-hmm. Katie. No, you're fine. Um, for some reason, this man's name, to me, I mean, I, I know it more than... Than the rest of them. Maybe because I he was like the last one. It was the most recent. Yeah. Maybe most I recently guess. in the news. And I don't remember exactly what his final adjudication is. Yeah, and I'll Katie's shut up so we can get to it. Yeah. Well, it was just May 6, 2002. This is a year after the last trial. The After Blanton. Yeah, after Blanton's trial. So, year after Blanton's trial, we've got Cherry's trial. And his ex-wife does testify. Okay. So we have we have testimony by his former wife Willadine Brogdon. What did she have to say? I don't know. Willadine testified uh, ten days into the trial and said that he boasted to her that he had been the one to plant the bomb under the steps and had returned hours later to light the fuse. 
said that they'd really? never catch him. He could bomb another church. Said he regretted that children had died, but then added his mm. satisfaction that at least they wouldn't be able to reproduce. And probably used a word that started with the letter N. That he said this in the trial. The he said this. No, he this this is testimony from his former wife. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm sorry. I was I was. I got confused there for a second. I was like, what, are you kidding me? These are okay. things he had said to her that she's testifying on. And his account differed from previous beliefs. Like, you know, everyone thought Shambliss planted the bomb, and that's mm. what he, you know, he was arrested for and, and convicted of and, you know, died with that belief. But now he's, sta- uh, we're having testimony saying Cherry was the one who planted the bomb. But him lighting the fuse would explain why no timing device was ever discovered in the wreckage. So they planted it at 2.30 in the morning, right? I mean, that's supposedly they were there at right. in the wee hours of the morning and had to breeze back by. I don't know how long a, a, a timing device or a fuse on a pack of 15 sticks of dynamite has to be. But um, and the, and something, just in Something time, about a fishing float was found. Oh, so that was the that was the it was the, the floating, dripping, whatever yeah. we talked about earlier. That was the 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 mm-hmm. fuse device. Yeah, and said that um, many of the same audio tapes that made their way into Blanton's trial made mm. their way into Cherry's. So if you think about it, if it was that float that, that flotation device, all he had to do probably was walk over to a styrofoam container full of water and poke a hole in the bottom of it, and as the water dripped out, and the float got lower it eventually mm-hmm. but isn't he saying he lit the fuse he's saying he lit well, the fuse he, he's but using it, that well is that just an fuse. expression to say that i'm the one who started the bomb on it i don't know maybe so, i don't yeah, know yeah. but if we're talking about that flotation thing maybe and i'm curious about that now i'll, I'll I, i'm curious about that i didn't know that i didn't look into bomb making i don't want that on my google search history <laughs> you do with that what you want scott <laughs> don't put that on me hey can i borrow your computer tonight no, no. <laughs> For Sorry. a lot of reasons. Yeah, understood. <laughs> <laughs> Leave that in. That's hilarious. <laughs> Back to those audio tapes. Mitchell Burns, who was that FBI informant, he testifies confirming the four of them were at the meeting on that day. On October 9th, 1963, the meeting that is referenced in the tapes okay. where... Blanton is telling his wife, I didn't cheat on you this night. I was at a meeting. September the 9th. The, the few days before the yeah, bomb, yes, right? September, September the 9th. 9th. Yeah, sorry, September the 9th. Um, it's confirming that they were, at, they were all four at that meeting. Mitchell and, testifies. And, and they called fact. them, and Katie, help me out with this. They called them the Cahaba Boys so they're because they met under the Cahaba River Bridge on, on Highway 280, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was their secret meeting place. Apparently, there was a, a way to park and maybe walk down underneath the bridge, and that's where hot, they yeah. met mm-hmm. uh, to have these, this, this group. And it, it, as bad as the KKK was uh, in the 60s in Alabama, in Birmingham in particular, there was an there was a inner sanctum mm-hmm. that was really the violent, yeah. the bomb makers, mm-hmm. and those were these guys. These were the radicals. Yeah. Insane. The radical The radical radicals, yeah. (laughs) Like I said, in these recordings, Cherry is also heard talking to his first wife. So he's had multiple wives. His first wife here is Jean, 
And he's talking to her saying that he and other KKK members had constructed the bomb on Friday. So we built it Friday. It's ready Mm -hmm. to go. He, back in the 60s, had also signed an affidavit in the presence of FBI members stating stating that uh, he had been a part of of bomb making. Really? Yes. I mean... well, I mean, it was it was a different time. I mean, we like we've all talked about. I mean, those two guys, the and I hate to keep going back to Emmett Till, but those guys did never denied what they did and admitted that they went and pulled the kid out of his uncle's house and and killed him and were acquitted inside of an hour. Mm-hmm. Back in the '60s, white on black crime wasn't a crime in a lot of instances. It's and it seems like the more severe the crime was, the less severe the punishment was mm. until that worm turned. And I'd like to think that that editorial that we talked about last week uh, from the editor of the Atlanta Constitution at least expressed the sentiment of a lot of reasonable, sensible human beings Yes, um, who wondered what all the it's the law of the land let's, let's make this happen instead of fighting it tooth and nail to the last man and, and killing four little girls in, in church in church mm-hmm. I'm sorry I read, I checked myself on that. That affidavit that he signed, this is where I got that October date. He signed an okay. affidavit in October of 63, right after the bombing happened, mm-hmm. stating that he, Shambliss, and Blanton were all at the premises of the, the supposed bomb making. Okay, and so, it was a sign company. It was, it was just a few blocks away in Birmingham. Yeah, he, he signed an affidavit with the FBI okay. saying, yeah, we were all there. They put the screws to him, and he signed something. Mm-hmm. The the FBI, I guess. Yeah. All right. Uh, prosecution noted that Cherry had a you know a vast history of racial violence dating back to the fifties. He. They also noted that he had experience and training in constructing and installing bombs from his service as a marine demolition expert. Well, I didn't know that, but that makes all of the sense in the world mm-hmm. if you think about it. Well, you had to have someone who knew what they were doing. Yeah. And here was our guy. The last one we've got. Mm-hmm. On May 22nd, the jury deliberated for seven hours. Okay. So you have... A little surprised yeah, about that. Two hours on what, in my mind, is a case with less evidence. Did, uh, did Cherry have a better defense attorney? He must have. Because with his bomb-making past, with his signed affidavits, with his... Former wife testifying against him. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, of course, the same tape. But let's be honest. You can see how a good lawyer can just discredit an ex-wife's testimony. That is true. Yeah. That is Yeah, true. she's disgruntled. She's, she's got angry. every re- reason to be sour grapes and, yeah. and He's lie. He's paying her alimony. Here's all the canceled checks. Yeah. Yeah. You can put doubt in a reasonable person's mind sitting on a jury. Mm-hmm. But the rest of it was is very shocking that, yes. you know, that that would be... I don't know. He must have had a better defense lawyer. I guess. And, you know, just <laughs> juries are different. So this jury just may yeah. have, you know, really yeah, wanted true. to, you know, really wanted to go through everything. But he is found guilty after those seven hours. And he is sentenced to life. Like I said, that was the only. The death penalty was never on the table. Death penalty was never on the table. He was sent to a Kilby Correctional Facility, which is in um, Mount Meigs, which is an unincorporated portion of Montgomery County. Way to go. 
Katie Gibbons, I have never heard of either uh, of those things, and you dug right <laughs> down to you struck oil on that one. And I'm I'm assuming it's pronounced Meigs. It's M E I G S. Yeah, that sounds right. Meigs. And Meigs. he passed away of cancer on November eighteenth, two thousand four, at seventy four. So he only spent a couple of years in prison. You may be wondering, how pissed off is Bill Baxley right now? Oh, I am wondering. Tell he, me more. Yeah, he is very frustrated with all of this. He's like, so no Bill one. Bill Baxley. Let's remind everybody just just in case. Bill okay. Baxley is the he, he was, was was the Attorney General of the State of Alabama who convicted uh, Dynamite Bob Chamless in 1977. Okay, and he's with the whatever one who, evidence he could get from the FBI. He's the one who did not get all of the sealed evidence given to him. Yes. Right. Okay. So I'm sorry, but yeah. I, I just no, wanted no, to make sure no, that I'm glad you everybody did. remembers. No, yes. Yeah. The significance of this. Okay, go ahead. And he's like, you know, to paraphrase and put a few words in his mouth, you're, you're kidding me. Like, you had audio tapes of them talking about the crime mm-hmm. that you just didn't give me? And a signed affidavit? Yeah, and a signed affidavit saying that they <laughs> a were A month in after it happened? This mm. place at this time. And he's, you know, he's like, I may not could have got those convictions in the 70s, but I sure would have liked to try. Well, and they could have uh, spent more time in prison mm-hmm. and not exactly. lived yeah, their not entire lives until they were elderly and then put into prison for a small amount of time. Yeah, not having 20 more years to be free citizens. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm glad justice was served, but it just seems Belatedly. like it, it could have been served. And that's, that's what's so, such a, an issue with this case and such a black eye on the, the state of Alabama because this, because well, the, the, just the way the whole thing played out. Exactly. Well, in Doug Jones's book, uh, Bending Towards Justice, which was written in 2019, he tells this really interesting story about he sat in the balcony for the closing arguments when Bill Baxley was the attorney general of the state of Alabama to try and convict Dynamite Bob Chambliss. And, and he did. Uh, Baxley put him in jail. But Jones was a young law student at the time who took the day off, skipped classes to go because he knew this was, you know, this was a civil rights era case and somebody maybe was about to be finally, 14 years later, convicted of killing these four little girls. And so he went there that day and he listened to it. And he, and he says that he left with a conviction that if I ever got a chance, if I ever become a lawyer, I want to spend some time in public service and try to get the rest of these guys. And 20 years later, he had the chance, 25 years later, he had a chance to do it. And as he went through that evidence that the FBI gave him access to, that Bill Baxley didn't have access to, he and Bill Baxley talked on the phone and, and communicated with each other a lot. And, uh, he felt an obligation to some extent to Bill Baxley to finish the job that Bill Baxley started. As mm-hmm. you know, Bill Baxley's the AG, but he's the U.S. attorney. He felt like he needed to finish that job because Baxley was playing with one bullet in his revolver. And, you know, uh, Jones felt like he had at least two or three. Well, and if you go into public service, you owe it to the public to finish the job. Yeah. I'm glad that he had those convictions and, and did that. And I didn't know any of that about, uh, and one of the reasons I was so excited about doing this case when you gave it to, when you gave us the assignment a few weeks ago is because I learned after Doug Jones became the U.S. Senator for the state of Alabama a few years back 
that he was involved in this prosecution. I didn't know that about his history, and 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 I and I heard about it when he was campaigning, and I forgot about it. But then when you put this the spotlight on this case, I thought I get to find out some of the details about this. And sure enough, he had a book about it. And I I didn't read all of it, mm-hmm. but I read some of it uh, enough to to get as far as I've gotten so far. But it was really interesting, and I don't understand how the law works mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of ways, but. I can see how it could be something that if you felt compelled to make sure that justice was served, that you'd, you'd really want to tackle a case like this. And Doug Jones is one of those guys, and I thought he did a terrific job following up where Baxley left off. So, mm-hmm. Just one little bonus nugget. You may remember the name uh, Gary Thomas Rowe Jr., who was, who, he was the man that Shambliss claimed was the actual person responsible for the bombing. Or at least he claimed that he was the guy with the dynamite. Mm-hmm. He's the guy I gave the dynamite to. Roe joined the Klan in 1960. He became an FBI informant in 61. He was an informant from 61 to 65. During this time, he was still participating in violence against black and white civil rights activists. <laughs> I mean, he's... St- well, I guess if you're going to sell it, you got to sell it, right? And uh, his own... It- from his own admission, he says that he shot and killed an unidentified black man. Oh, uh, well, never mind. And that he had been an accessory to murder of another individual. And what became of this? Any justice? No. No. He was interviewed about his involvement in this bombing. He failed two polygraphs. About the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing. When questioned about Okay. Being involved in the so 16th there, there's Street a Baptist little Church. doubt that that I mean maybe maybe Shameless was telling they, the truth or maybe maybe they both were involved. Yeah, they think he was a fifth party to it. Ah, or that's the that okay. that's a theory anyway. Is that there may have been a fifth member of this gang, which would have been Roe. But in 1979, an investigation cleared him of involvement, and he was never looked into again. This makes perfect sense as to why these records were sealed. Mm-hmm. This right here, yeah, to an, me. another FBI informant who was who probably is doing terrible things, yeah. a murderer. Yep, this, that by makes his own sense admission, by yep. his own admission. And I, I can't say for sure if that's why they did it, but yeah. that makes sense to me yes. as to why it was so difficult to uh, <clears throat> to finally get those. And I think to, you're on the right path. Sorry for, for sorry for like clearing my throat into right the, into the, the microphone. My, uh, my, my apologies. Um, I have something I want to read to end this episode on. We've talked about a lot of terrible, dark injustices, and and finally getting to justice many many years later. I want to talk about the survivor of the church bombing, there was a fifth little girl, and her name was Sarah Collins. And uh, there was an interview with Sarah Collins Rudolph. She's, that's her name now. She, is, uh, she was interviewed by a news outlet. It's called Wave 3 News. I'm getting this from wave3.com. That's in Cleveland, Mississippi. And the the author is Faith King. It was published and updated on August the 20th, 2021. That's what it says here. And she interviews this woman. So if you want to look this article up. So two days ago. You can take a look at it. And this was the statement that Sarah has. 
those clans that bombed the church, I forgave them for what they did because sometimes people do things and the devil leads them to do these things because I had to forgive them. I just hope before they passed that they got it right with God. Sounds like a devoutly religious woman who has a lot more uh, goodness in her heart than I do. Can you imagine having that much no. love and goodness because in your heart? When that bomb quite went amazing. off that morning and that smoke cleared, the first thing that Sarah Collins did was shout out, Addie, 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 where are you, to her little sister. And Addie never answered her. Addie was... Eddie died that morning. Mm -hmm. And Addie was the 11-year-old, correct? That was Sarah's younger sister. So to end on, this note I think is very, very appropriate to show the love and devotion to her faith and to her God that this woman has. So thank you. Thank you for that. And if we all had that, and if they'd all had that back then, maybe we wouldn't be talking about four dead little girls in a church. We absolutely would not What a show of love. so, yeah, I had to share that. Take that, racists. <laughs> it's giving me chills over here. Well, thank you. This has been part two of our two-part episode on the 16th Street Baptist Church yeah. bombings. Sorry, Jake. I think that Scott and Katie, that you both did an excellent job. We're awesome. And if you out there thought so, go to iTunes give us a five-star rating and a comment so we can give you a shout-out. Exactly. And if you didn't, keep it to yourself. <laughs> and then the, the day this episode's coming out, uh-huh. we'll be live again at Easy Street, so come see us. All right. Live. What are we doing that night? Do we have any clue yet? We don't know. It's a surprise. <laughs> It'll be a surprise to me, I think. <laughs> well, yeah, and, uh, don't forget to go follow us on all the social media channels. We're going to be posting lots of pictures of the 16th Street Baptist Church. Scott mm-hmm. went, as he mentioned in last week's episode. So he's yeah. got lots of good pictures. Can I give a hint about who we're going to have on the next show if everything goes as planned? Nope. Okay. No. No spoiler. A huge, awesome surprise for our next show. You're going to love it if you like true crime. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Good night, everybody. <laughs>